Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. It's good to be back. Last weekend, I was forced to spend Sunday in California with my family instead of with you people, all right? And I thought about you a lot, and I told my wife I wasn't working, and I was, and you know how family dynamics go. I came back to our church in full Easter sprinting as a staff. We're going to smile a lot this week to hide the stress, all right? It's going to be so good because we have so much going on. Actually, this Easter is going to be good for me. My, the first time I ever spoke at Crossroads was 10 years ago in the sunrise service because they were a little scared about what I'd say. <laughs> and like a year and a half later, they let me speak on, on the regular Sunday morning services after they felt I had matured. Okay, um, so it's good. And this upcoming sunrise service, I'm going back, everybody. It's going to be great. It's 6.30 a.m. right out there. We have two other places to worship with us at 9.15 and 10.45. And sometimes Easter weekends at churches is kind of like when you're in a classroom and the teacher is being observed. You know what I'm talking about growing up? And it feels like the teacher you have now is not the teacher you have every day. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's not us at Easter. We're just going to do us, everybody. So I say that to let you know that I'm probably not going to be in a tie. And if that's going to bother you, lots of great churches around here who's going to wear ties. All right? One, two, um, and this is real. I, I think Easter, it, it is this kind of interesting tension and dynamic of there's a lot of new people in our building on Easter that might know Jesus, might not know Jesus, might know Jesus, but might not know him every day. And so... We want to do what we do, which is just point people towards Jesus. That's it. And so we'll have good moments and bad moments, and hopefully our screens work and I don't mess up too much. But why I say that is because I think we all know people who need to know Jesus, and we don't do mailers at Crossroads, and we don't do a whole lot of advertising, because I think the best way to show people Jesus is through relationship. And so if you know somebody who is going to go to a church that doesn't have one, I think a personal ask is a big deal. So I'd encourage you guys to do it. I'm going to do it. It's going to be awkward, I promise. And just tell them, if this was awkward, come to church with me Sunday, right? Should be a great end to Crossroads. But before we get there, we got to talk about this week. And if Easter is next Sunday, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. I don't know what your experiences are with Palm Sunday. Growing up, it was one of my favorite Sundays of the year because I grew up in a Methodist church. It was the only Sunday that when I walked in, the church gave me a weapon. They, they gave me a palm leaf. And what you're saying is, Charlie, a palm leaf's not a weapon. Give a palm leaf to him and his twin brother at 10 years old. I promise they're doing battle through the service, right? My mom's yelling at us, please stop hitting your brother in the face. I'm not. I wouldn't do that. Slapping him with the thing. We barely made it through the first song before she confiscated him because we're not worshiping well, you know? And really why I love Palm Sunday, among all the other reasons and along with the fact that they gave me weapons is, I think as an evangelical non-denominational church, which is what we are, there's a lot of really great things about it. One of the not so great things is sometimes we miss out on the depth of tradition of other kind of different nuances of our faith. So Anglicans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians. And, and they're more regulated by history and tradition. And because we kind of do what we want when we want, sometimes we miss out on that. And Palm Sunday is the beginning of a week that is so rich and deep with tradition. 
And sometimes we just focus on Easter and we miss the week before. This is the beginning of the Passion Week. And and what the Passion Week is, we're talking about greater love. The Passion Week, I think, is single-handedly the greatest example and expression of love that I've seen and I've read about and I've heard about. And, And as we, as followers of Jesus, reflect on every single day what Jesus went through and how he ran into tragedy so that we might know peace, hopefully it deepens the celebration of Sunday. So let's not make the mistake of thinking just about Easter and missing the days that lead up to it. There was a priest in the mid-1900s, and he says this about the Passion Week. I loved it. He said, The tragedy of the Passion brings brings to fulfillment our own life and the whole of human history. We can't let the Holy Week just be a kind of commemoration. It means contemplating the mystery of Jesus Christ as something which continues to work in our souls. What that means is as we think through the Passion Week and all the things that led up to the cross is constantly deepening and forming our understanding of what love is. And that's what we've been talking about is greater love. This idea that we are called to love greater than we do. This idea that love is so integral to our society. It's so ingrained in who we are as a people group. And here's the deal. Jesus does it better than you do and I do. Jesus loves better than us. He just does. And we've seen it in John 13. This is the last week in our series on greater love. And as we've gone through John 13, what we've seen is his talking to his disciples about what greatness looks like, not what they thought, but what it actually is. And so he gives them an answer to what is greatness. And he answers what is greatness with how well do you know what love is? Jesus loves better than us, so let's look at the person who loves better than us to learn about love itself. And begins chapter 13, bit of a recap uh, with this verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, now he loved them to the very end. We've hit this every week because I think it's so transformational. When it says he's loved to the very end, the word there in the Greek is, is literally that he's loved to completion. It's the word that Jesus says on the cross. It means it is finished. So what that tells us is that when Jesus loves, and this is why Jesus loves better than I love, when Jesus loves, he loves in a way that is fully mature, complete, and perfect. What that means for you, and it's so beautiful, is that I can't, you can't do anything today to make God love you more tomorrow because it's already full. The problem is that we don't understand that kind of love because I don't love people like that, and I never will be able to this side of eternity. I love my wife more than anybody else in this world, and I don't say, man, you can't do anything today that won't make me love you more tomorrow. I can give her a list, you know? That's not going to go well, though. Um, And and when Jesus says, I've loved you to the fullest extent and expression, my love can't grow anymore because it's already perfect for you. Then he dives into three or four different things about what that love is, characteristics of it. And that's what we've looked at. The first week, we looked at how greater love sees the bigger picture. So one of my favorite parts of this text in John 13 is he says, I've loved you and it's perfect and it's full and it's complete. And then right after that, he says, and I'm leaving. And it brings up this tension of, I thought love holds on tight. And he says, love does hold on, but sometimes holding on means that you're a catalyst for change. And we talked about how love that comes from God, greater love enjoys the graces of today, but doesn't sacrifice it for the promises of tomorrow because Jesus says there's a better tomorrow and me loving you today means I have to leave to let that happen. And so the way we love people in our lives, family, friends, is sometimes love prompts change and doesn't fight it. That's hard. Now we talked in the text and went to Jesus washing some feet and so we talked about how greater love serves and, and really it was the depth of the service that Jesus did. 
that job was reserved for the worst of the worst slaves. Even Jewish slaves thought they were better than feet washing. And Jesus, who was rabbi and lord and master to these 12 people, gets up and starts washing their feet. And the room is silenced with a moment of, what is he doing? Oh my goodness, this is weird. And it, it really just, if you understand foot washing in the first century, like we talked about, it heightens, it propels us towards, it inspires us to serve greater. And they came into that room with a conversation about what does greatness look like? It looks like my influence growing. They're arguing about who's going to get greater plots of land when Jesus takes over. And they said, Jesus said, you've missed it. It's not about what you get. It's about who you serve. That's what greater love does. It's about using your power for the good of others, not for the good of yourself. And then in the third week, we talked about Judas. And we said that greater love is the choice to love the captives. And we talked about how it floors me how Jesus could love Judas. How Jesus still washed Judas' feet. How Jesus made Judas the guest of honor at that meal. It floors me that Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. And I think the only way that Jesus still loved Judas is he didn't look at Judas and see his enemy, even though he betrayed him. He looked at Judas and saw a captive that needs to be set free. And our charge was maybe when we look at our enemies, we stop seeing them as enemies, but we see them as captives, like Jesus did. And it turns our contempt into compassion. And we're able to love because we understand that people that need love are in bondage by sin and by Satan. And so when we love like Jesus, it changes our language, our dynamic, our philosophies towards even those people who hate us, who betray us, who try and kill us. And instead of contempt, we have compassion. And it all builds up to where we're going today. Today we're going to be in verses 34 and 35. It's a new commandment he's laying down. And he's talked about what love is, the specifics, right? It's, it's, it sees the bigger picture. It serves. It loves captives. This is not just what love is. This is what love's all about. This is the all-encompassing, what I'm building towards. Don't miss this moment. Part of his narrative is he's winding down dinner with his disciples and saying, if you want to know what love's all about... 34 and 35 encapsulates what I'm trying to tell you. So we're going to be in that text today. And before we get there, we're going to spend a couple seconds and we're going to do what we do on Sunday morning at Crossroads. We have two goals. We want to know God and experience God. We know God by studying his scripture. And we fully understand that we can meet every week or every day and not get to the end of our understanding or comprehension of God. And that doesn't scare us. That actually deepens our ability to understand his majesty, knowing that I'm not as majestic as God. It's a good thing that I can't fully comprehend that God is bigger than me because I really need him to be bigger than me. So we open the scriptures every week and we know there's no end to that. And that's not scary. That's awesome. Two, we experience God because that's how God made us. We don't just want to be the best at Bible trivia. We want to walk this stuff out. We want God to shape our souls because he made you with a mind, a will, and an emotion. And we don't run from those things. And we embrace the feels to the best of our ability so we worship. And on Sunday mornings when we come together, we believe it's both of our roles, mind and yours, to engage together in growth, meaning that this is not a one-man show, but the Spirit's alive and active in this room. And your job as we read the scriptures is to press into the Spirit of God and ask him, what are you teaching me and how am I growing? Whether I do a good job or a terrible job, all right? So we're gonna take some time and I just wanna allow us time to pray that God works this morning and allow you time to pray silently that God works in your heart and mind so that we might be prepared for God's work. I'm going to ask that you pray for me that I don't, you know, embarrass the kingdom this morning. All right, so let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you give us the grace of today. 
just to gather together and to worship you and dive into your scripture and to know you more. I'm thankful for the grace of today. May we never, ever take it for granted. As we open your scripture, Spirit, speak to us through the word of God. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take a couple seconds and just silently ask the Spirit to do work in your soul today. I also ask that you pray for me, that God might use my words to be edifying, encouraging, uplifting, and most of all, point all of us towards him so we can leave this place looking more like Jesus than when we came in. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen. There you go. John 13, everybody. You can open your Bible. Before we dive into the text, we're going to do some context because I love me some historical context. Really what we're talking about today, it's two short verses, but in these verses is really Jesus reimagining and repurposing an idea that the Jews held dear. And it comes down to what we believe about identity markers and tribes. Because today's conversation really is all about tribes and what defines tribes. And really throughout time, I'm going to go through about three examples of different identity markers in tribes. We've had these things that define who we are as different gatherings of people, different tribes. I have a friend of mine who writes a blog and he refers to Christians as, you know, the tribe all the time. And from the first church to back in Judges, we're going to look at just a second, you see different markers that identify different subsets of people. So for example, in the first century church, there's a symbol that became known for the church. It's the ichthus, right? Then you've seen it, it's this big fish-looking thing. You're saying, Charlie, that's a fish. I'm saying, no, it's an ichthus, because it sounds more academic, okay? Also, it stands for what we believe about Jesus. It's the Greek for Jesus Christ of God, uh, Son, and Savior. And so it's the ichthus, and why they did that, why that symbol is up there, is a couple reasons, but one of the big ones was, in the first century world, you couldn't be an open Christian. After AD 64, Nero started persecuting a lot of Christians. And if you were openly a Christian, you were openly a dead man. Um, and they would use you as bait in their games. And Nero actually used Christians to, to light his lamps in his gardens. It was, it was pretty dark. And so you wanted to live because really that's your best good. And, and you, you fought for that and for your family to live. Because oftentimes if you're a Christian, they didn't just stop with you. They killed the family. And so... They said, well, what if we have a sign that demarcates who we are and it needs to be kind of subtle. So what would happen is you'd go up to somebody that maybe you didn't know and you start talking to them and you say, how was your day? And then in the sand, literally, you would just draw like a little crescent moon with your foot. And if the other person was a Christian, they would draw the other half of that and they'd make the fish. And then you knew it was safe to talk about Jesus because if it wasn't, you might die. So as a cultural, that was a, an indicator, a marker about who they were that allowed them, that defined them and allowed them to talk about Jesus. There's an example in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you very top level of it. It's in Judges 12. And it, it follows a story of somebody called Jephthah. And if you haven't read about Jephthah, it is not a positive story we read at bedtime. It's a tragedy that we read to, you know, it's PG-13 Bible, everybody. And so the story of Jephthah Continues after his biggest tragedy, and um, he starts getting in a fight with his tribes around him. So Israel's 12 tribes, and he leads, he's a Gileadite, and then next to him was the Ephraimites. So it's like cousins in a way. And what happened was he beat the Gileadites, beat the Ammonites, lots of these words, right? 
And so then the Ephraimites, his cousin, came in after they beat him and said, what? Bro, I'm bigger, faster, stronger. Why didn't you ask me to fight with you? And he gets mad. And he looks at the Gileadites, Jephthah, and he says, I wasn't asked to be a part of this. And he looks at him and he says, I'm going to burn down your houses. That's what we call an escalator, okay? And Jephthah responds and says, I did ask for your help and you remained silent. You didn't do anything and I risked my life and you sat there and now you want to take part in our victory. If you burn down my houses, I'm going to take up a sword against you. And in the first seven verses of Judges 12, a civil war breaks out. Gilead in the end wins and they surround the fields of the Ephraimite fords. And as Ephraimites are trying to come back to their homeland, they stop them. And here's the deal. They all kind of looked the same because they were from the same ancestry, all sons of Abraham. They were Israelites. But they had to find a way to distinguish certain Israelites from other Israelites. What are the markers they're going to use? And so in verse 7, I'll read just one verse from Judges 12. It says, whenever an Ephraimite, this is Jephthah talking to his people, whenever Ephraimite fugitives say aid and say, let me cross over to their land, the men of Gilead asked them, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they said to him, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, and he could not pronounce the word correctly, they grabbed him and executed him right there in the fjords of the Jordan. Two things we learned. One, I feel really badly for people with lists back then, okay? It was really a, it was just a casualty of war. Um, two, I love this story because it, it kind of points out that we all have different identity markers, even in our subsetter tribe. I'm sure your family has some. And throughout the scriptures, we've had different things that defined different expressions of the Jewish community and our faith in the first century, and we have it now as people living in the flowerplex. I remember a couple of years ago, probably everything's a couple of years ago now, I'm that age. It was probably eight years ago, okay? And back when I was doing the youth men thing at CBC, I, uh, if you can imagine this, there was a world in which there was only one Bahama Bucks in the whole flowerplex. It was terrible. You, it was in Louisville, and it still drew all the high school kids I actually used to live decently close there. I could see it from my window. And all the time, high school kids and middle school kids used to say, hey, Charlie, where do you live? They were never going to get that answer, ever. Just because, one, I have wisdom. Two, I don't want to clean up whatever they do to my front lawn, you know? And so I'd say, I can see Bahama Bucks from my house. And so they would, like, drive up and down the streets creepily looking for my car, you know? And one time, I actually met a student there. He's a good friend of mine who I've known since he was, like, three years old. And uh, we're sitting there talking. He grew up in this area. He went to Marcus High School. And he goes, it's crazy how many high school kids are here. And I said, yeah, are they all from the same place? And he sat there and he said, I can tell you exactly where they're from by looking at them. And, and no kidding, he sat there and he said, that table's Capel High School, that table's Lewis High School, that table's Marcus, that's Flower Mound. And I said, well, how can you tell? And he listed off the reasons. He said, Capel people cut their hair like this and wear these shoes. Lewis people have these kind of jeans. Flower Mound people wear these kind of sweat. I was like, wow, man, that's impressive. I had no idea that these indicators, these markers, sent the picture, even when you don't mean it to, of who you are and what you stand for. It was pretty impressive. And we have those today outside of just high school kids. I was talking to staff this week, asking where they see kind of cultural or, or identity markers in our culture today. And, and they all came back and said, I don't know if you guys own a motorcycle or have ever, but there, there's a motorcycle wave I hear about. So if you have a motorcycle, I don't have one. My wife won't let me. We're working through that. Something about sanctification, I don't know. Um, and she says, now we have a kid. It's never going to happen. I say, never's a long word. And then some friends saying, just buy it. Forgiveness is easier than permission. That's just into my life. Um, so I guess when you drive by somebody, and you'll see it, you'll drive by somebody with two motorcycles passing each other. They give like a little, I don't know, they do a hand signal down here somewhere, you know? 
And if you look for it, you'll see it. You say, wow, I, I had no idea. And when you think about um, indicators or markers, when you think about what that means, I think that honestly, if you're going to ask who has the strongest ones or who's most proud of their heritage, I, I think you have to talk about Jewish people. I think Jewish people as a whole have some of the clearest, most defined, most passionate identity markers of any ethnicity. There is a uh, professor at Johns Hopkins University. His name's Mark Kaplan. He's the professor of Yiddish literature, language, and culture. That is a very Jewish title. And, and he talked about how, I read it this week, he talked about how he studied in London. He's from Louisiana. There is not a high level of Jewish pride in Louisiana. He's from Louisiana, and he said he met this other person in this program that was a Jewish person from New York City. And he said he's trying to figure out what it means to be a Jew, and he gave this interview, and it was in Yiddish, and he said, she quote, said this to me. She said, you are a Jew, and this is something different. This isn't just another flavor. This is another phenomenon, another identity. So why we go there, why we talk about this, is because, Jewish, because Jesus is sitting in a room full of 12 disciples that had a whole lot of Jewish pride that had a whole lot of things that marked them as Jews that they knew about and that they flaunted. And for the next, actually, probably three minutes, I'm going to give you a very high picture view of why they had that and what that looked like, because it matters when Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. He's kind of speaking about their cultural markers or indicators. At the very beginning of this thing, the Jews kind of have pride in who they are because from the start, God picked them. We see it in Genesis 12, right? Now the Lord said to Abram, God found Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. And you will exemplify divine blessing. He's saying, God found Abraham and said, because of you, I want to make everything you touch great. Not just you, but all your people. And the whole world is better when we're more powerful is how they interpreted this verse. This literally is the beginning of Jewish pride because most countries start because people migrate somewhere and they begin new traditions or new customs. The Jewish nation started because God founded them. I understand why they believe that they are special, you know. He continues on in, in verse seven, chapter 17. He says, God says this to Abraham, I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. It will extend to your descendants after you and throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So they, they really hold on to this. We have an exclusive claim on God as Jews. We have an exclusive claim and they held on to that. And their people group grew just like God said it would. And they moved to Egypt with 72 people. And they came out of Egypt with Moses with three to five million people. And they're kind of this fledgling community that hasn't really developed anything yet because they were slaves. And God brings them to this mountain in the desert, Sinai. And it's another key moment of cultural and identity markers for the Jewish people. He gives Moses the law. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 19, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, my laws, you'll be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. Literally, they come back to this and they say, because we have the law, God chose us and we're better. And that Jewish pride extended throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And so when we read the New Testament, you have to understand what's going on there. You have to understand the Jewish pride that's servicing because they knew that God called them and God called them so that people might see God. They missed that point a lot, but they still have this enormous pride in their culture and their tradition and their heritage. And it's because God gave them the law. That is why they're better. So much so that that's what the book of Romans is written about. It's into that tension. 
where the Jewish people who thought they had the law were better than the Gentile Christians in Rome. And so Paul writes and says, hey, guys, we need to be unified. And the first part of the book of Romans is all about Paul breaking down Jewish privilege. He's telling them, you're not any more special because you have the law. And in chapter 3, verse 19, sorry, verse 9 through 11, he says, what then? Are we better off? Certainly not. For we have already charged that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. Just as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So you got to understand that they're sitting around a table, a bunch of Jews that are prideful because they have the law and they're God's chosen special people and nobody else has it. And Jesus steps into that moment, the one thing that identifies them, that marks them as a culture, that gives them a leg up on the exclusivity towards God. Jesus steps into that moment and he says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. The thing that you hold on the most high regard, I'm going to speak into that. I give you a new law. Love one another. Radically and completely is shifting their idea of what they had to be prideful in. And when he says, I give you a new law, there was already one in place. That's why this one is new. The old one is in Leviticus 19. It says, you must not take vengeance or bear grudges against the children of your people, but you must... Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new law. The old law of love was, you love people as much as you love yourself. Because I know people and you love yourself, right? What he does in the Old Testament is he picks the greatest expression of love they can find, which is the love that we have for ourselves because we are prideful people when we look in the mirror, you know? And he says, you take that same passion, you take that same care, You take that same view of others that you have of yourself. Because in the Old Testament, in the first century world, that's the greatest thing they loved was themselves. Jesus, I give you a new commandment. You're going to love one another. And when he says new there in the Greek, that word doesn't mean completely throw the old out. It doesn't mean the old was bad. It doesn't even mean, in some senses, replace it completely. It just means kind of fresh and updated, right? It's kind of like, when you, um, while I was doing some thinking this week, I met with uh, a guy named Dave Simmelbeck, and he used to be on staff here. And one story that sticks out to me with Dave is, I guess he really loved Krispy Kreme donuts, I believe it was. In 1999, Krispy Kreme came to Dallas, everybody. I did some research this week. Yeah, Krispy Kreme <laughs> came to Dallas, and I guess it changed. So it's like a huge fad, right? I read articles about how it stopped down traffic in Arlington, and people would drive from 30 and 40 miles just to get them. They went through 270 dozen donuts an hour and employed cops in three eight-hour shifts all week long to control the crowds. I I read a D Magazine article that said basically one guy said, I've been married four months and I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose my wife to a dozen donuts, right? (laughs) The passion from which people loved it. And here's why, because you'd be driving down the road. And here's why there was such an influx of people as once an hour that little sign would light up and it would say hot and fresh. You know what I'm talking about? And people would be like, this is, this is what I'm all about. And if you, in that hour, when it was hot and fresh, if you tried to give somebody a donut that was not hot, nor was it fresh, I bet they'd throw it back at you. And it's not that it was a bad donut. It's just that when you recognize the goodness of the new donut, it completely redefines what the old is all about. It makes it a better version of the old one. 
Jesus is saying that. It's not that the old way of loving people was bad, but I'm going to give it new definition, new meaning, new taste, so that the old doesn't taste nearly as good because this one is so much greater than the old ever could be. He says, I give you a new commandment, love one another, and here's where it's different. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. He says, we're going to redefine the source of your love. Before the source of your love was you, now the source of your love is me. Greater love is a greater capacity because its source is Jesus. And that might not sound like a big deal. That might sound like something we all know to be true, but here is the deal. I think it's when we press into how Jesus loved us, when we take into account the Passion Week, when we read the story of what Jesus went through, it reminds us that our love for other people doesn't have an end because Jesus suffered for us. And in this moment, the disciples didn't get it because they just thought that Jesus was a teacher and a rabbi and he made a meal for them. They had no idea what Jesus was going through next, and he did. And so he looks at his disciples and he says, you don't know what's gonna happen next, but I do love others like what I'm about to do for you. He gives us a new source to our love. He's redefining the thing that identified them as Jews in the first place. And they didn't know what it meant yet. And then he goes on. He says, not only am I giving you a new commandment, but he says, just like the old commandment defined who you were as a people, he says in verse 35, everyone will know you by this, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's saying, this is your new identity marker. This is your new shibboleth, that you might have love for people. It's interesting, in the book of John, it's kind of building towards this moment. It's building towards the passion the whole book is. And John chapters 1 through 12, you see any of the Greek words used for love, there's four of them, any of the Greek words used for love, you see it 12 times total. The passion narrative starts in chapter 13, and from 13 to the end of the book, you see any of the Greek words used for love 44 times. It's like Jesus is building towards something and saying, this is what I'm all about. This, as I go through what's happening next, is my expression of love that I want you to show to other people. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, love one another. If you want people to know that you're mine, do what I'm about to do for you. It's a really beautiful expression of the way that we're supposed to be known. And I think we all knew that though coming in. I don't think this is a new verse for most people. But what I think we do as we press into the Passion Week is hopefully, as we read the stories, it gives new passion to our love and it reminds us of the depth that he went to and gives us new veracity to love those around us, even those we don't want to. And just a side note before we, um, I'm gonna read some from the scripture here in a bit, but I think love is, is complicated too. What I'm not saying, don't mishear me, what I'm not saying is that love always looks like a handshake or a hug because sometimes love is tough. And so he's having a broad picture description, not a nuanced description. So let's not be too nuanced here. Sometimes love is tough. And, and without getting too much into that, I will say this. If you have to dole out tough love, if you have to stick by your guns and punish or judge or ground your kids and you feel like it's unloving, I think the way that you can know if it's unloving or loving is if you enjoy doing the tough love, you're not being loving when you do it. If you don't enjoy it, then you might be loving when you do it. So what's your heart look like in those moments? Because I can't tell looking on the outside. I think also, 
We use this as a litmus test for how good of a Christian you are. There's no such thing as being a better Christian, right? Jesus bought, paid for, righteous, all that good stuff. We live into the call of Jesus. He doesn't have first, second, and third place on the depth chart of disciples. They kept trying to get him to. He's like, he hasn't missed the point. Righteousness is righteousness. There's no levels of it. My righteousness is one thing, and everything else falls super below that. So what we do sometimes is we say, well, I, I didn't love my wife very well this morning when we got up because I was in a bad mood. Maybe I'm not a good Christian. Don't do that. I think it's not necessarily a litmus test for judgment or shame. It's a call into something. It's a charge. It's kind of the meta-narrative. He's saying, as a church, as a whole, as a people, as a whole, what are you known for? It's not just the moments of today. It's all of your tomorrows. What are you known for? And my point here is, as a church, for example, if we ask people around our air, what is Crossroads Bible Church known for? If their answer is in some version of love, we need to rethink what we're doing better at loving in the first place. Because Jesus says, this is how people know you're mine if you love well like I've loved you. On an individual basis, it's the same way. Yesterday, Andy talked about Dick Goddard's funeral. I spoke at it, and, and so did Steve Hickson. And, you know, we didn't see each other beforehand, didn't talk about what we were going to say. Probably should have, but we didn't. Um, and he got up before me, and he kind of said what I was going to say, you know? And, and I think that's really beautiful, though, because I think what that shows, we knew Dick in different times in his life, and we knew him closely at different times. Steve, a couple years before me. And... I think what that shows when you get three or four different people to speak at a funeral or, or a wedding or whatever, and they all say the same or similar things. It shows the character of a person, a man, a church, an organization, a family. And Steve got up and said, I love Dick because I knew that Dick loved me and he was for me no matter what. And I got up and I said, he said what I wanted to say, you know, because it shows his character over time. And because it was so loving, we could both look at each other and say, that man followed Jesus well. He's saying, they'll know you're mine because of how well you love one another. Let that be your charge that you live into. So if you have a bad day today, remember there's tomorrow. Let's pick up and love again because this is a big picture perspective, you know? And I think when we talk about the idea of love, I think it radically changes, and this is what Jesus is going for. Love radically changes people's hearts. Knowledge doesn't. <laughs> Just doesn't. I think knowledge is good, and so we press into and know God, but knowledge rarely leads to life change. Love mostly does. And we see in the first century church, First century church, one of my favorite examples of how they loved is uh, through a tragedy called the plague of Cyprian in 250. And it was this plague that hit Rome. And um, plagues in the first century were pretty rough stuff. They all lived on top of one another because it wasn't mass transit or cars, so you couldn't go to the suburbs. And so you lived on top of one another, and they didn't understand how bacteria spread. And so when plagues hit, they didn't know what was happening or how it was spreading. They just knew people started dying and they just knew that if they get away from it, they might have a shot to live. So when this plague hit, when any plague hit, people fled cities. It said at its height, this plague killed about 5,000 people a day in Rome alone. And at that point, what started happening was, historians tell us, people started piling the bodies on the side of the road. And if you were sick already, they just piled your body with the dead to let you die as they left. Except for Christians. There's a third century historian named Dionysus, and he describes the Christian response to the plagues. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease. 
drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. What it said was when people ran out, Christians ran in because Jesus says to love like he loved us, not like we love ourselves. That's why Jesus says in chapter 15, he's talking to his disciples, no one has a greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Love isn't just what we do, it's who we are. It's more than an action. It's an identifying marker as followers of Jesus. And so here's why I think the Passion Week's important. Because it's an adverbial tie, it's an adverbial case for what the depth of love should look like. Jesus says to his followers, you're gonna love in a new way like I've loved you. And then he walks out of that room and says, let me show it to you. Let me show it to you. And if we just get to Easter and we miss the stuff in the middle, we miss the depth of how we're supposed to love and be known as followers of Jesus, we miss our identifying marker. So what I want to do um, is talk a little about the Passion Week as we close. Don't get too excited. My closing's about 10 minutes today. Um, Bart Erdman is a first century scholar. He's a Jewish scholar. He defines crucifixion. And so when we talk about what Christ is about to step out and step into as he leaves this meal, he defines crucifixion in, in a way that kind of, because we're distanced from it, we don't get it. So he says this about crucifixion. He says, Rome will take you and strip you naked. They'll drag you into a public place. They'll nail your hands, wrists to a crossbeam. They'll nail your feet to um, an upright crossbeam and set you up as a public spectacle for people to see and mock. By doing so, we will not only torture you to death, often it took a couple days for a person to die, we'll reveal to all who can see how helpless you really are. Your hands and feet will be nailed securely to wood and you'll be left to hang in a position where you cannot fend for yourself. You will not be able to move your body. You will not be able to wave off scavenging birds. You'll not be able to kick away the roaming dogs. You'll not be able to lift a finger to help yourself. We can do this as Rome, and we will if you oppose us or our power. This is what we will do to you. Crucifixion was not merely a death by torture. It was a symbolic statement that we are Roman power and you are nothing. And if you oppose us, we will prove it by rendering you absolutely, completely powerless while we rack your body with pain and make you scream. And again, why this matters is because what Jesus steps into is what he's trying to show us with how much we're supposed to love. Pope Benedict said this about the Passion. He says, ultimately, in the battle against lies and violence, truth and love have no other weapon than the witness of suffering. St. Francis de Sales says, Mount Calvary is the academy of love. So how I want to end this morning is a little different. Um, I'm going to end by reading some scripture. I don't know if you've read the Passion story. What happens to Jesus after he leaves this meal? It's a couple chapters in, in most of the Gospels. I'm going to read from Matthew's Gospel. It's about 1,900 words. It uh, should take me about eight minutes or so. I've timed it a few different times. And, and the purpose of this is twofold. One, maybe you haven't read it before and you just need to hear it. <laughs> Two, maybe you have. And each week, each year, each passion experience that we have, we press into the depths of which Christ loved us because it inspires us to love like Jesus, not love like we love ourselves. This is our identifying marker. And so we press in to the moments where Jesus bore pain because hopefully it allows us to love greater than we have before. And so I just 
want to end by reading the Passion Narrative, you guys. And so you can follow along with me. I'm in the New Living Translation. You can sit there and close your eyes and listen to it. You can stare at me awkwardly if you want to. You just do you, all right? Um, but I'm going to try and read slowly for me, which is normal speed for most people, and, uh, and get through the Passion Narrative as we remember the extent to which Christ loved us. So I'll start in Matthew 26, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive road called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to his disciples and says, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, My friend, go ahead and do what you came for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask for my father for I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you've come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day teaching, but all this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it all would end. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witnesses, they couldn't use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward. They declared, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you've said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need another witness? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering. Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over to him and said, you were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them we can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times that you know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, they led him away, and they took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who betrayed him, realized Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down on the temple and went out and hung himself. The leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to use this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field and made it into a cemetery for foreigners. This is why the field is still called the field of blood. It fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, they took 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want for me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing, so he sent for a bowl of water. And he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility's yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. 
And then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out an entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him and grabbed him. They grabbed the stick and struck him on the head. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes again. And they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people... Passing by, shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, to the Son of God, save yourself and come down off the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law and the elders mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others. They scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we'll believe him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified ridiculed him in the same way. At noon, darkness fell on the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lemesimictini, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, held it up to him on a reed so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. Jesus says, they will know that you're mine if you love like I've loved you. Welcome to the Passion Week.